Good morning. Good morning, everyone. If you do not know who I am, my name is Pastor John, and I'm so glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning. I'm also thankful for those of you who may be watching online this morning. There's a question I want you to think about. Would you rather have one of something, or would you rather have many of something, a lot? Would you rather have one or a lot? And I think most of the time, as long as it's a good thing we're talking about, we would want to choose the many, a lot of something, rather than one thing. If it's good, yeah, I I would like a lot of it. But I gave you a choice. I said you could have one cookie or you could have many cookies. I think most of us, if we could, we would choose the many cookies. If I said, hey, I'm going to give you something, I will give you one piece of money or I will give you a whole stack of money, I think most of us would say, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll take that stack there. If I presented options before you, hey, I've got this one option, something we could do, it's that no one really knows about it, very few people have have done it, or there's this other thing we could do that's really, really popular, that everybody's talking about how great it is, we would probably be inclined to choose the one that was more popular. That's our natural instinct, but sometimes, sometimes the one is actually better than the many. Let me go to those examples. Let's, let's talk about those cookies again. What if that one cookie was an Elder Dan Long made chocolate chip cookie? And there's a perfect consistency, just the right of moistness and flavor there. So what if that was the one and the many was a bunch of stale, flat cookies with no flavor at all? Well, in that case, the one is much better than the many. Or what about those bills I talked about? What if that one bill was a $100 bill and that stack was all $1 bills. Well, in, in that case, that one bill would be better. And what about that activity I suggested to you? What if that unknown one was perhaps maybe a hike that was in this one mountain place and not a lot of people go, and we went and we had this gorgeous view that was just us to see, whereas the popular one maybe been the most popular hike there is, where we were right next to people shuffling along and we have one second at our view before we have to shuffle on the next place. Well, then, then that relatively one unknown one would be a little bit better. So one can be better than many. And in the same way, God often chooses to value the one over the many. And we're going to see that today in our passage, which is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you haven't been here, we've been in the gospel of Mark trying to answer this question, who is Jesus, seeing how Mark reveals that to us. Last week, we were at the end of chapter four. We saw Jesus's power and authority as he calmed a storm, and he did it in such a way that left his followers asking, who is this? And today, we're going to see another example of his authority as he's going to free a man who has been captured by demons. Now, this story we're looking at is elsewhere in the Bible. It's also in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8. But here in Mark, in several ways, it emphasizes this contrast between one and many. And it's in that contrast that we learn a lot about who Jesus is and what he values. So if you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you want to use that blue Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it should be pages 998 going on to page 999, but we'll also have the words on the screen. And then I'd ask you that if you are able, if you would please stand to honor the reading of God's word, 
And follow along as I read our passage for today. This is Mark chapter 5. I'll be reading verse 1 through verse 20, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 1 begins with they, referring to Jesus and his disciples. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He had lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Verse 8, for he, this is Jesus, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. But verse 10 says, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he, Jesus, gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14 says, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, that man, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray you would give us the hearts to see the value that you place on one. Whether it's one individual in need, the one person of your son, the one who chooses to follow you, God, or the one witness that we can have of what you have done for us. May we see that value, see who you are, understand the heart of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray in this time we have together that our own thoughts of ourselves would decrease and we would think more on him, more on Christ, so that he would increase in our thoughts and as the model of our lives and as the one who can save us. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So this morning we're going to look at four of these, these kind of contrasts where there's a talk about one thing, one person, one thing happening, and then contrast that with many, this one versus many. So the first thing that we'll learn in this passage, the first way we'll see this contrast is by seeing one in need, one man in need versus many fans or followers, or followers in the sense of they're, they just want to follow from a distance, so many fans of Jesus. One in need, one person in need versus many fans. In some ways, we could say this is kind of the context of this story here. It's kind of looking at what's happening in the background around this passage. And what we see is that Jesus cares for individuals. He shows compassion for this one man who is in need. And if we try to think about what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark so far, there were many people who wanted Jesus' attention. There were many people who wanted his time, many people who wanted something from him. They were just interested in, what can Jesus do for me? Or maybe he's doing something cool that I want to watch. We've seen that several times in this Gospel. If you remember a couple chapters ago in Mark chapter 3, it talks about how Jesus is trying to get away in Mark 3, 7, and 8. He withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. They were from everywhere around there, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When that great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. There were so many people we've read about how he couldn't even rest. There was one time he couldn't even eat. There were so many people jammed around him. But in our text today, in Mark 5, he's now alone. It's just Jesus and his disciples, his followers, those that he wants to be there. And if you remember last week, they had just been through a storm, and this storm maybe helped push people away, stop them from following him. So now he's arrived. He's crossed the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake in the northern part of Israel. And when he gets to the other side, he gets out of the boat, but he's immediately met by a wild, possessed man who is living in these tombs, one who has an unclean spirit. The passage talks about how no one had the strength to subdue or to tame him. Even if you could try to bind him with chains, he would just break free of those bounds. Maybe some people tried to help him, but it seems that eventually people just stayed away. It was easier. It was safer. Verse 5 tells us that this man spends all his time among the tombs. He's crying out, he's screaming, and, and cutting himself is what the text says. And these things are interesting, they're brought up like this, because in some of the literature of that day, the signs that you could tell someone was insane, or that someone had perhaps been possessed, were that they were, one, walking around at night, which it says night and day he's doing this, two, if they spend the night at a grave, at a tomb, well, that's what this man is doing, Three, if they're tearing their clothes, well, he's cutting at himself, so he must be doing that. And four, if they try to destroy themselves or their property, and that seems to be what's happening here as well. So Mark's audience reading this book would understand how serious this is that was happening here. They would understand this, yes, is a man who is possessed, who is controlled by this demon. Now, this cutting that's talked about here in verse 5, some people say, well, maybe he's, since he's possessed by demons, he's doing some type of demonic ritual. But a more likely explanation seems to be he was trying to end his pain and suffering by whatever means necessary. He was trying to stop these demons 
from tormenting him. And that's what Satan's minions do. They seek to destroy people, to make them feel alone, different, and self-destructive. And that's awful and terrible, but the encouraging thing we can take from that is, at the end of the day, that's all that Satan can do. He can lie, he can deface, he can defile, he can destroy, but he cannot create. He can't form beauty, love, and light. He and his demons are cruel, powerful. They, all they can do is hate all of God's creation and seek to tear it down. But verse 6 tells us, when this man, though, saw Jesus, he runs to him and he falls before Jesus' authority and power. Let me ask, why did he fall before Jesus? Was it because the demons were compelled to worship, to submit to the one they knew was greater than them? It could be that. Or maybe this man, in what little control he had left, he rushed to Jesus because he wanted to be healed. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But regardless of why exactly that happens, I want us to take a moment to think about what is happening here in this story. And this will, we really have to think about what we talked about last week. Jesus had walked away from crowds, many people who wanted him, sailed in this boat, went through this huge storm that was awful. His disciples thought they were going to die. He lands here. They have a short conversation with this man. And we read the whole passage. Some people come and immediately Jesus leaves. They go through that storm and all of that. They get there, talk to one guy, and then they turn around and come back. Why? Because Jesus did all of that for that one man. This one demon-possessed man was the reason Jesus and his disciples crossed the sea. He was the reason they went through that storm so they could get to this one person Jesus wanted to help. He went through all that effort for one man. This is even more profound if we think about some other things happening here. Again, we read the passage, there are pigs in this area. And that may not strike us as odd, but the Old Testament says that the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, were not to own pigs. They were not to eat pigs. But since they're in the area, that tells us we're not in an area where Jews typically live. This is a Gentile area. We see its name sometimes in this passage. It's called the Decapolis, which is a Greek word meaning ten cities or ten towns. So this is not a Jewish area. So Jesus is going through these great lengths. He's going somewhere he's not supposed to go to heal this one man who likely may not have even been Jewish. He did all that to heal this one man. This point was kind of brought to my mind. I was reflecting on it because uh, I think it was a little over two years ago. It was during COVID. The theater down in Lancaster, Sight and Sound, they had a production about the life of Jesus going on, and they put it for free online around Easter. And to me, the scene that covered this story was the most powerful part of that production because they emphasized this, how Jesus did all this, went through this for one person. It emphasizes his heart. And they had a song in that moment, because it was a musical, to try to explain what was happening here. And in that song, they referenced another passage of Scripture, when Jesus speaks in Matthew 18. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? 
That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He left all those fans, all those people are like, we love you, Jesus, we want you to stay here. He left to go get this one person who had strayed away from him. If we want to see more of this heart of compassion, this is more of a side note, but look at the value Jesus places on this man's life. Jesus valued this one man more than 2,000 pigs. The pigs get the demons and they go drown in the water. Jesus valued this one man more than them. Now that doesn't mean that we should mistreat animals. God has given us a stewardship of the world. We should take care of this creation he has given us. But it does show us the unique worth and value that people have, that human beings have. We've been created in the image of God. We have unique value. And Jesus saw that value in this person. Every person has worth and value. God's compassion leads him to show mercy to those who suffer. One time in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, he rejoices in the fact that God does this. In Isaiah 63, he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, his great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them. And he does it according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This is Jesus's heart. He values this one individual in need over the many fans that he left on the other side of Galilee. They may have wanted to flatter him. They may have wanted to see him do wonderful things, but Jesus says, no, I've got one person I need to go and rescue. And I think that's a challenge to us as we reflect on our hearts. Do our hearts reflect Christ's heart? Do we value other people, the one, that way? Do we share God's compassion? Or do we choose to mock or insult people who are different than us, to downplay when other people are suffering? Or do we take an example from Jesus and extend Christ's love to that one in need? He values the one over the many. And the reason he has that kind of love is because it's based on his authority, who he is. Another way we see this contrast of one versus many in this passage and the fact that here's one Jesus and he enters a battle here against many demons. One Jesus versus many demons. This is the lesson from the miracle that happens here. Jesus demonstrates his authority even over a legion of demons. Here he confronts and he conquers the enemy. In verse 7, the demons proclaim Jesus's identity again. We've seen this in Mark. They try to say who Jesus is and see if they can take his power from him. They even use the Old Testament name of Most High God, crying out with a loud voice, says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They cry out in this unnaturally loud voice, which is the way demons are described talking in the Bible. What have you to do with me? Or what do I have to do with you? What do you want? Why are you interfering with what I'm trying to do. And then there's something really interesting here that these demons do, or this man does. The end of verse 7 in my translation has, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And that word adjure is interesting because in Scripture, that's a word used when someone is trying to do an exorcism, when they're trying to cast out a demon. I don't have it up on the screen, but in other places in Acts chapter 19, there's some men trying to cast out a demon, and they say, I adjure you by God. 
It's a language of an exorcism. So these demons are trying to cast out Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, go away, stay away from us. They know who Jesus is. They know what he can do. They're making a last ditch effort to take control of this situation. Because as they also say in verse seven, do not torment me. They know that eternal torture and torment is what awaits these enemies of God. Matthew's account, I think, brings out a little more what it is they're afraid of. In Matthew 8, 29, it says, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Saying, God, someday you will judge enemies, but are you here to do it to us now? That is what they are afraid of. And again, in these verses, we see the strong irony here. Last week, the disciples saw Jesus calm the storm, and they said, who is this? In this chapter, Jesus gets out of a boat, and the demons say, here is the Son of God. They know who he is. Part of the reason they speak out in our text, verse 8 said, is because Jesus is insisting on his authority. Verse 8's implying repetition. Jesus was saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He had to insist on who he was because there were a lot of demons here. But Jesus is determined to rescue this man who has this unclean, impure spirit. Because Jesus is king and they are not. The Old Testament speaks about a king's authority. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, The word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? And so the demons try. They say, what are you doing, Jesus? But he says, no, my word is supreme. And to show that he identifies exactly what he's up against, he asks, what is your name? And we get to verse 9, which I have to admit has to be one of the creepiest verses in the Bible. It kind of, if you can let it, sends shivers up your spine. Jesus says, what is your name? And this man replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And the reason that's so powerful is a legion at that day was a unit of soldiers that could have been 5,000 men to 6,000 men strong. Now that doesn't necessarily mean there were 6,000 demons in this man, but there was a lot, a lot and a lot of demons infecting this one person. And this is a part where I could steer off into a side road. We could take a lot of time to talk about what are demons? What are they like? Are demons around today? What does that, that look like? But I'm not going to do that today because I think that misses the point. Because immediately in the very next verse, Jesus wipes the floor with these 2,000 demons. He doesn't spend much time talking about who they are. Look what happens in verse 10. The demons immediately surrender to Jesus. They can't run away, so they have to ask for his permission to leave. Verse 10, it says, he, again, this is the demon-possessed man, begged Jesus not to send him out of the country. The demons fall to their knees. All, however many thousand are like, we can't win. Please don't hurt us right now. The demons may have given the man the strength to tear chains apart, but they knew Jesus was far stronger. And the demons do not want to go to the eternal hell right away. That's some confusion we do have about demons. Sometimes we think that Satan and the demons, they live in hell. It's their home. No, that would be a place for torture and torment for them as well. These demons are afraid of being sent there. One scholar, Danny Aiken, puts it this way, this tormentor is now the tormented as he contemplates his destiny. He realizes, I can't beat Jesus. We, although thousands of us can't beat him, we don't want to go to hell right now. And this is the power of Christ. 
these thousands of demons are cowering in fear before this one man, Jesus. They cannot do anything without his permission. They are under his control. Jesus claimed the man they were in as his own, and so now these demons must leave. They don't argue that fact. They just try to pick their destination, where they're going from him. They ask if they can go into this herd of pigs, and verse 13 tells us that Jesus gives them that permission. So they enter the pigs, and the pigs rush violently down a steep bank, and 2,000 of them drown in the sea. Which is interesting, because it shows us that we don't know how many demons were in this man, but there was at least 2,000 of them if there were 2,000 pigs that went down into the water. They couldn't have the man, so they took their wrath out on those pigs. And this image here of these demon pigs drowning in a lake, perhaps that's looking ahead to the fate that comes to their master, Satan, and that will come to them as well. If we turn to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation 20.10 tells us that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into a lake. He was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The point we see here is that Jesus has authority over the forces of evil. Jesus alone has the authority to save us, to save this man and to save you and me from sin. We've seen, compared to last week and this week, Jesus has authority over the wind and the sea, and he has authority over every spirit, God, any other spiritual force that there may be. He alone can save us. Friends, this is important because we cannot fix ourselves. You could read every self-help book that there is. You could be subscribed to every single self-help blog you could find. You could go through any number of self-improvement programs. You could listen to podcasts till your ears fall off, but those things cannot bring lasting heart change. Only Christ can do that. And that's the encouragement here, because no matter how far you have sunk into sin, he can still save. Look at this man we're reading about right here. This man had thousands of demons in him. He was cutting himself, screaming, running around. But this man was still saved and changed by Christ. And that means that you can be too. Whether your sins are many or few, Jesus can overcome them all. The Apostle Paul will describe it this way in the book of Romans. He says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So let me ask you, do you know that freedom? Do you know that freedom that Christ brought to this man? If you know that freedom, then praise Jesus for that freedom. And if you don't, let me tell you, you can rely on this one who sets you free. If you have experienced that, then even today you can still rely on him, the one who brings that freedom, that victory. The British pastor J.C. Ryle says he has already triumphed over Satan on the cross and Jesus will ever triumph over him in the hearts of all believers and he will intercede for them that their faith fail not. Jesus has won the victory, so any temptation that we may experience, we do not need to fear. Christ 
can overcome it. He has won the victory for his people. He, the one Jesus, has authority over the many forces of evil. But what happens because of this? What's the result of this authority in action? Well, the next contrast we're going to look at is the difference between one follower of Jesus who results from this versus many people who reject him. One follower of Jesus versus many who reject him. This is the lesson we see from the response to this miracle. And the lesson we learn is that many people will not like Christ's work. They will not like what Jesus does. They will not like what he has to offer. But there will be some who are led to follow him. It may be the difference of one person versus many, a huge crowd, but still Jesus' kingdom grows. Here in this text, verse 14 tells us about the pig's herdsmen who rush to tell others what has happened. And a crowd now gathers. They want to see for themselves. And what they find is a man that has been completely healed. A man who is sitting there in his right mind. He's sitting there wearing clothes. Uh, Another gospel tells us before when he was running around he was naked, but now he's wearing clothes and he does not need to be chained. He is functioning as a human being should. A great change has taken place in his life. Paul speaks about the change that comes to us if Christ sets us free. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That old, that has passed away, and behold, now the new has come. The crowd comes and they see this. This man is new. He's a new person. He looks completely different. And this should be a time of great rejoicing. But instead, the local crowd doesn't respond that way. They respond with superstitious fear. They knew who this man was, and in their minds, they'd already decided he was a lost cause. Nothing can be done to help him, and they are struggling to comprehend this man has been set free from the demons. Maybe they were also upset at their loss of income. I mean, 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs, but it seems they're more afraid of what Jesus could do to them. Verse 17 tells us that they beg and they plead with Jesus to leave, to depart from their region, to get out of the area. And this this is just such a sad ending to this miracle. This man who had these thousands of demons, he must have been a nuisance for years running around the tombs there. You couldn't visit your loved ones or outside there because you never know if you'd run into that man over there. But here they see the one who has done it, and they ask him, no, you need to leave. You need to get out of here. That man may have been the one possessed by Satan, but everybody else in the area is still under his control and his rule. They still belong to him. One pastor, Jason Meyer, put it this way, the crowd would rather have an army of evil spirits in their region than the Savior of the world. They conclude that being without Jesus would be better than being with him. And maybe, maybe you're someone here or someone watching, and maybe you've had the same thought in your life. You say, you know, I I must have some interest in church or religious things, or maybe somebody's dragged me here. I, I think about it sometimes, but, you know, I don't know if I want anything to do with knowing that Jesus person. Maybe you're afraid what Jesus will do to your life if you come to know him. Maybe you think, you know, I like my life. I like the way things are going well. I don't want to shake things up or do things differently. I kind of like 
how things are going now. It's not perfect, but I'm okay with how things are. And, and let me be honest with you. I, I, I understand a little of that. I understand because I'm someone who I like routine. I like things staying the same. So I, I get that, that you don't want to change things. But it's incumbent on me to warn you that you will not live forever. And this life you may be enjoying right now will not last for all eternity. And at your death, you will enter eternity. And that will either be an eternity at peace with God through Jesus Christ, or you'll join these 2,000 demons in an eternity under God's wrath. Maybe you're like these herdsmen who seem to value your money. You're like, ah, there's certain things I'm doing with my time and my resources, and Jesus is just going to mess that up. He's going to ask me to give to the church, give to other people. No, no thank you. I've got things I need to do. I need to take care of my family. There's a checklist of things that I have. But again, I have to warn you, this life will not last. If you reject Jesus, yes, you may have a temporary calm in your life, but then what you lose is eternal peace. You will not have forever to choose Christ. One pastor, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way, the Lord Jesus Christ will go away if he is asked to do so. He will not remain where his company is not desired. The crowd says, Jesus, get out of here. He gets in the boat and he goes. You do not have forever and you are not promised tomorrow. These many reject him, but even though that happens, there is one man in our story who does embrace Christ, and that's that man who was healed. Verse 18 tells us that as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Here we have Jesus' words lived out. If you remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Tom preached on Jesus' parable of the sower, where seed goes on different types of ground, and on some nothing happens, but on some, in one place, the seed does grow, and it bears fruit. And here we see that happening to this man. And it's so interesting, you can look at our passage, and if you want to take time to do it, your translation might not have it, but mine particularly brings out that word begged. It doesn't highlight it, but I'm saying if you read the text, you'll see the demons beg Jesus to not torment them. The crowd begs Jesus to leave the region, but this man, he has the right kind of begging. He begs Jesus that he might be with him. He wants to follow, accompany his savior, his savior. He wants to be with Jesus, to follow him closely as his disciple. He's seen this man is the true source of love, light, and compassion. I want to be with him. He is grateful for Christ. He has seen what he can do. He's actually experienced the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I didn't realize this, but I came across this in my research, a passage, Isaiah 65. It speaks about how God's going to rescue people. And here's what it says. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So people who didn't know him. And who are these people that God reaches out to? Look what verse 4 says that they do. They sit in tombs. They spend the night in secret places. They eat pig's flesh. Well, those are three very interesting, one may say coincidences. I would say, here is this man. He's experiencing God fulfilling this scripture. 
Jesus rescued him just like God promised back in the book of Isaiah. And maybe you're like this man. Maybe you've realized what he's realized. You've realized this is who Jesus is. This is what he can do. And maybe you are the one today that he's calling to himself. If that's you, your call is to turn from sin, turn away from your rebellion against God, and believe instead in what Jesus can do for you. And trust me, he is more than worth it. He is worth coming to. He's worth believing in. He is worth knowing. I would encourage you to talk to someone about that, to ask more questions. How can I know Jesus? How can I follow him? I've seen what he can do, and I want him. But before we wrap up, there's one more lesson from this story we should talk about. We've seen what Jesus has done for this man, but what happens after that? And this one isn't so much a contrast of one versus others as it's one and many fitting together at last. Here we have this one witness leaves this conversation with Jesus and it leads to many being amazed at Christ, many marveling at who he is. This one witness leads to many amazed. And here the lesson is from Jesus' challenge he gives to this man, and a challenge to us, who will we share the good news with? We're told in verse 18, the man wanted to be one of Jesus' close disciples, but in verse 19, Jesus has another calling for him. Jesus instead asked this man to share, to witness about him in his area to these Gentile people in this region called the Decapolis. He's to tell his friends, his family. He's to tell people what Jesus has done to share the great things that have happened. He's to speak of the Lord's mercy and compassion to him. God has worked in his life through Jesus and other people need to know. I like how Danny Aiken puts it. He says, these people, the Gerasenes might not have wanted Jesus, but Jesus still wanted them and he would not leave them without a witness. He left this man there to share the truth. Now, before I kind of tie that to our lives, this may be a little surprising to us because as we've been reading Mark, normally he's healed and people want to tell others and Jesus tells them to keep quiet. So why is this different? Why does he tell this man to share? Well, when he was among Jewish communities, Jesus didn't want people to think he was a political messiah about to start an army or a revolution. But this man lives among the Gentiles so he can freely proclaim Christ's healing power. He can live out a passage like Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. I will tell what he has done for my soul. I will tell what he has done for my soul. Jesus has commissioned this man, this man that he has redeemed, to be a witness for his glory. And that's the task he gives to us today, to tell others about what God has done for us. We sometimes might be like this man. We say, you know, Jesus, there's all these people around me who don't know God, who aren't nice to me. I'd rather just go with you. I'd rather go with you, be at peace with you, and be taken out of the situation. But sometimes Jesus... Well, always, Jesus has a task for his people where we are right now. And his task for this man was to share. And he's faithful to that calling. Verse 20 tells us that he spoke to many people in the Decapolis. He proclaimed to them what Jesus has done. 
And the result is everyone marveled. They were amazed at what he said. And that's where our passage ends. But, you know, the book of Mark actually tells us a little bit about what happened after that. It seems that this man shared with a lot of people. Because the next time Jesus comes to the same region, something interesting happens. I'm going to skip ahead and just read a few verses in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. But look at Mark 7, verse 31. It says about Jesus, He returned from the region of Tyre. He went through Sidon. He went to the Sea of Galilee. He went to the region of the Decapolis. He hasn't been there since they told him, You need to leave now. But when he gets there, what happens in verse 32? They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged, hey, there's that word again, they begged him this time to lay his hand on him. This time they ask him for the right thing. Say, Jesus, you're here, wonderful. Would you please heal this man? And after that healing, this time now he has to tell these Gentiles they need to calm down and how they're talking about him because his fame is spreading there too. Look at just a little ahead, verses 36 and 37. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged him, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astonished, amazed beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. But what struck me about that is look what they say. They say, he has done all things well. In that passage, there was just that one man who was deaf and mute. How could they say he has done all things? Now, Mark doesn't tell us, but he did leave somebody there to tell them about what Jesus has done. And when Jesus showed up, they knew who he was. It seems, perhaps, the witness of this man who used to be possessed by demons prepared people to see who Jesus was when he came again. That's how God used this one man, this one witness. But let me ask you, how will he use you? Who are the friends, the the family, the people that God has placed before you? Who are you called to share with? Pastor Spurgeon applies it this way. If Jesus has done great things for you, be always ready to speak of it till all men shall know what Christ can do. This crowd was afraid, but then they saw this is what he can do, and that is our task, to speak of what he has done for us. Now, I know there's many things we might want our life to be about. I mean, I I want to do this with my life, and this, and this, but Jesus has a task for us if we know him, and that task is to witness, to proclaim to the earth his glory, to proclaim his authority over all things. And yes, each of us are just one individual person. But as one individual person, we have our own unique interests, talents, abilities. We have our own unique stories. How can God use you to bring Him glory? How do you give Him credit for what the things you do? This is maybe you have the ability to do this. You say, others say, wow, that's incredible. You can do that. Yes, God has given me the ability to do this thing. How can he use your one witness to impact many? Pastor J.C. Ryle said, if we have anything to tell others about Christ, then let us resolve to tell it. If there's anything good God has done for us, let us resolve to tell it. He says, let us not be silent if we have found peace and rest in the gospel. Have you found peace and rest in Jesus? Then don't be silent about it. 
And I love what he says here. He says, all are not called to be ministers. All are not intended to preach, but all can walk in the steps of this man, this man here from Mark 5, and tell his family, his friends, those he knows what God has done for him. I'm not asking you to get up here and do this. I'm not asking you to go on a street corner and proclaim a bullhorn, but God gives his people an example of telling those they know what God has done for them. Yes, maybe your story is not as dramatic as this man. You say, you know, I didn't have 6,000 demons in me, Pastor John. That's, that's fine, but you can tell about what God has done for you. If you claim to be a Christian, a follower of God, then there's something he's done for you. Proclaim, share that message with others. Share your personal experience. Share what you know of the goodness of Christ. And emphasize that that thing that happened to you was not something that came from yourself. It was not your work. It was not your doing. It didn't come from your cleverness, your intelligence. You did not deserve it. You did not earn it. God showed his grace to you. That God who has compassion on one person in need had compassion on you one day. That one Jesus overcame many other circumstances, many other things that were around you. And he changed you so that you became one follower of him even when many reject him. And now he calls you to be that one witness that leads to many who see Jesus Christ. Tell others, friends, that he alone is worthy.